0: Santa Cruz Coffee Break, a special podcast series brought to you through the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum, a place on the web where guitar players can comfortably get together and enjoy their love of great music, great players, and of course, great Santa Cruz Guitar Company guitars. Find us on the web at santacruzguitarplayers.com. Should you want to reach Santa Cruz Guitar Company, their web address is santacruzguitar.com. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is completely informal, and if you have ideas of topics you'd like to hear Richard Hoover express his thoughts on, please join us on the forum and send us a message. Please also note that all the opinions are those of the speakers and do not reflect the official positions of Santa Cruz Guitar Company, its employees, or its dealers. With all that out of the way, let's get on to this month's Santa Cruz Coffee Break.
1: So in our previous podcast, we made some great advances in in a general discussion of TOPS. Uh, We covered a lot of ground on the basics, um, but it's such a a powerful part of the acoustic guitar that we we just, we needed to go deeper. So we're gonna do a second podcast today uh, to go a little more in depth. This gives us a chance to help players get educated on some of the issues and and specifics of TOPS, Richard Hoover's experimental and scientific explanations, um, you know just to help us all make more informed decisions about guitar choices. So let me start off by saying, welcome back, uh, Mr. Hoover, how good, are you?
2: Good to see you, Tad, this is fun to do. I'm looking forward to
1: it. Excellent, excellent, and of course, we have uh, Mr. Newman on the headphones, um, so we'll hear from him when, when we need to. So let, I think where we kind of left off with this last one um, is maybe a good place to start. Um, we were talking about spruces and we were talking about Sitka, Adirondack, et cetera, et cetera. But there are also some very specific, uh, let's say, place named tone woods, You know, like Tunnel Thirteen or Lucky Strike or Mendocino Sinker or, uh, you know, can you educate us a little bit on those?
2: Um, I'd love to and and I'm gonna give a I usually give this disclaimer is I'm gonna stick to science and proven scientific uh, Experimentation the results of of scientific inquiry when I interject an opinion because I don't know the science I'm gonna warn you first, okay, so this we're not talking about opinion here So let's break these down into two categories. One is place names Italian spruce uh, Mendocino uh, Tunnel 13 uh, Lucky strike they, they have to do with where the wood came from, right, a place name. And then there's things like moon spruce, which actually describe a, a technique of harvest or a style of harvest, which is a little different than that. So let's, first let's do the place names. I'm gonna uh, equate this with Italian or Swiss spruce, right? Okay. So what if the tree grows right on the frontier? <laughs> do you use uh, one side of the tree for the base side and one side of the tree for the treble side? You know, of course, you know, the Italian spruce would be the base and the Swiss spruce would be the treble. No, of course not. The <laughs> trees don't recognize the frontiers, and nor does the geographic location of something indicate uh, particularly uh, what to expect in the wood. But when we get the, the geographic location, not a region, but down to like a tunnel or a lake or a, um, a ravine or a tree fell, uh, then, then we're talking of specific. Right, right. Uh, Lucky Strike was a tree. That's, that's something. There's some consistency among that wood. Tunnel 13, they didn't build the whole tunnel out of the same tree. Right. or the same reclamation, mm-hmm. and uh, Tunnel 14, Tunnel 15, Tunnel 16 might have some of the same, wood as Tunnel 13, or maybe not, but, they, but they're but they relatively the same vintage, right? As-
1: assuming it all came from probably the same geographical area where they were cutting down trees to You build know, it's a things. safe assumption, I don't yeah, know that, but yeah. let's
2: you know, say that's a yeah. safe assumption. But still, there's going to be enough variety there that just the name doesn't guarantee anything, but you have a cool story with your top. Right? It's up to an experienced um, you know, luthier, let's say, to determine the potential of that wood in your guitar. Right, right. Uh, You're going to pay a premium for those things because they're well-known. That's marketing, right? So it's not to dismiss it. I love that wood, but I'm going to choose between uh, a whole bunch of sets to pick the ones I want. Now, does that make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. Good. The sinker is another story. Uh, sinker, we could say on the surface would... Uh, uh, correlate to old, right? Something fell into the water and it's been there for uh, 50, 100, 150 years. Um, now that's going to do something. Um, that's that and you have that question come up a little later but this has to do with what happens with age rather than being underwater. The polymerization of resins that make the wood more resonant because polymerization makes it crystal-like instead of frozen honey. So uh, that that if that's been underwater for a uh, hundred years, is the stuff we get out of Northern California. It's going to have a quality of sound not found in a new wood. Okay, uh, but you also don't know if that sinker uh, fell in the water f- uh, uh, 15 months ago or <laughs> 150 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. And, for and that. So again, sinker in itself is. Uh, a pretty broad description. Yeah, and there's it, no
1: consumer protection in the use of that uh, yeah, term either. But don't
2: don't get me wrong, I don't dismiss any of these. I want to pick the wood itself and choose between mm-hmm. the selection to get the right stuff.
1: But, but just real quickly, while we're talking about sinker, I had heard at one point that there was a belief that the great Italian violin makers would sink their wood in ponds to store it there. Mm -hmm. Is is there truth to that or do you know anything
2: about That's what I've heard too. I've I've read it from credible sources. Uh, uh, Marty won't speak to me so, you know. I don't, I don't have it from the horse's mouth, the luthier's mouth. Uh, but here's the rationale I understand, and, and, and this, isn't, this is an opinion alert, not my opinion, but what I read, I assumed, is, is expert opinions, right? Mm-hmm. Is that the reason the, that they would select a tree and sink it underwater is two things. Uh, one is the anaerobic environment didn't allow it to oxidize, right? And, the, um, uh, and bugs wouldn't eat it. Uh-huh. Right? It, it's a great way to store stuff and protect it while you waited for the resins to polymerize, right? So the first thing they would have done, is sink this log, and I don't know how long they did that. Have you ever heard no, no, an no. estimate? Let's say they did it for some years, a decade, something like that. The polymerization of resins is also anaerobic. It'll happen underwater. It'll happen on, in a dead standing tree. It'll happen in a, on an a old boat builder shelf or outer space if you did, it's going to polymerize and do that. Mm-hmm. But, the, but having it under water would, would protect it from decay and bug degradation. Now there's one more thing that, I, that, that was just my thinking on this, that the, the, you know, the tree nutrients that flow through the resins uh, contain sugars, and that's sticky stuff, and it will dissolve in water. Could that have mm-hmm. been a part of what they were doing to end up with like just a cleaner structure? But after that, they, they stacked it up, put stickers between the pieces for airflow, and put it out in the yard, um, and put a little lid to keep the rain off, and they left it there, they called it seasoning, because it would go through multiple annual cycles of hot, cold, wet, dry, expansion, contraction, shrink, swell, and it would reach an equilibrium. It's also more time for the resins to polymerize. And so, when they bring this piece um, out of the stack, it's, uh, it's stable, it's dry, and it has a chance of sounding better. And how long did they do that, you know? Or then how long did it sit in in the workshop before they used it? Those are all good questions. But the aging was really an important part of getting more resonant wood. And the seasoning was a way to make it stable. So that underwater was part of the process. I used to tell that story because I believe uh, the sources, yeah, uh, you know, expert well, opinions on it.
1: And having never heard any of your sources, but having heard a similar story, we either luckily heard the same sources, or or that story has been repeated in many people in many ways. Sure, I hope so it's it's not probably all my makes fault. sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that okay. So that sinker doesn't really give you any sense of how long wood might have been underwater. Um, obviously, it changes in in ways underwater that it wouldn't do just drying in the yard. Mm
2: -hmm. Are those desirable?
1: Well, (laughs) that's what I'm wondering, is is I've seen a lot of wood that has a lot of mineral staining and a lot of other kind of what used to be considered aesthetic defects that are now Mm -hmm. actually looked for when you get sinker wood. Um, I think people probably wouldn't believe it if you had a beautiful pristine top and somebody sold it to you as sinker, you'd say, no, it can't be sinker, it looks too good. Is that a reasonable?
2: (laughs) Well, the little, you know, the little, we call mineral, mineral too, little white specks, Mm -hmm. and you find it in Brazilian rosewood, Indian rosewood, and you also find it in, in like, redwood. It's, uh, does that happen in the living tree? Right, you know that the living tree could draw that stuff up, and it uh, it gets in the pores, and then you see it as, as the mineral actually when you cut the wood, um, or is it something that's collected when it's underwater? I don't think it's a water thing because we see it in uh, Brazilians that was harvested uh, from reclamation from old tree trunks, for instance. You know okay. that worked underwater, so I've seen it in oh. places where it wasn't underwater. That's my observation.
1: Okay, and then the other woods, the um the woods that are used in tunnels and mine shafts and bridges and uh, everything else, um, is there any thought to whether or not it's the vibration and, and you know, the exposure to trains and mine carts and rock moving machinery that's helping with this process or is it just purely, purely age?
2: Well after careful scientific study, which there is none, um, that's a beautiful story right? We had a big giant redwood board really, Uh, it was about 8 inches thick by 24 inches wide by about 12 feet long and this was in a quarry where uh, trucks backed up and they bumped into this board, they knew they were in the right position and then they dumped the gravel and they drove away and that quarry is still in business, right? So how many trucks banged into that? And that was a joke we told, you know, it's like pre-resonated by the dump truck so it has to sound better. (laughs) (gasps)
1: Very nice, very nice.
2: I don't know, I don't know. But I I will tell you this, this question may come up later, but this is a really important thing to educate people in. Uh, Old guitars, old violins are prized because generally they sound better than new ones, right? And I'm just going to hit the high points we can explain later. The biggest one is the polymerization of resins from the living tree to uh, a piece of wood that's years and years and years old. Right. So a violin has the advantage of a few hundred years behind it, the wood is way more resonant than when it was first made, right? Same with guitars. So that's why we start with old wood where the resins are already polymerized. Right. The other one is the release of tensions that were created when that was built. Less tension, more resonance with that. So Some people th- call
1: it the wood learning to become a guitar.
2: That's cute. <laughs> I like it. I'm going I'm to use it. Um, so we go, then we go back to this wood being resonated. Uh, that third part of the aging is what the translated from the French luthier school is de-damping. You know, if you touch a bell that's ringing, you dampen it. And so to de-dampen it is the opposite. And that, that was part of that process of what happens to it when it vibrates at the exact frequency of the top. The, the fundamental frequency of the top or the airspace, it will de-dampen it. it, it there's some arguments about how that works, uh, making the wood more flexible. But that's what we're talking about in this t- train vibration going through. It's certainly an effect, right? Mm-hmm. Does, it, does it de-dampen the wood uh, the same way blasting the right frequency over time would do? Um, remember, it's not the general noise that does that, it's resonating that timber at its natural frequency. Right. That's when it jiggles. So some part of the woo-woo, chug-chug, clank-clank might do something about that, but man, we're reaching. Right,
1: right, right. Yeah, no, it, it, but
2: it doesn't stop me from giving an opinion. About right.
1: It. Well, you get into the the people who used to put their guitars into closets in front of a speaker. and That's right. Crank up, you know, some rock and roll music to an insane volume. We, for love, a while, to, we or, love
2: to we love to give toys to our toys. Yeah. You know, and and that remember what that does is whatever you're playing at, it's only the note that vibrates, that top, of its fundamental frequency, or the airspace that does the work. The rest of it's just noise. Right. Right
1: wasted energy so um, if there's
2: no one there to hear it
1: yeah so with with some of this named wood that that we've gone over here i don't expect you to name anything in particular but have you ever found a named wood that you didn't think was particularly good hmm. that somebody marketed something and tried to promote it that you know you like tapped or built something with and then said well you know that's nice but
2: You know, I'm going to say that we probably would have been suspect to start with and wouldn't have bought the wood in that case. All these woods that we've mentioned, we have used those. You know, we use sinker wood. We've used uh, uh, the reclaimed tunnel 13, 14, 15. Uh, Moon spruce, you know, we deal with a supplier that we get that from specifically and regularly. i dealt with them for decades.
1: Well, and we didn't really talk on the moon spruce. Let's talk about that because you say that's a a specific... Harvesting technique, That's as right. opposed to, mm-hmm. so it's not location specific. It's not. I mean, moon spruce can be any kind of
2: spruce. It's um, a method of harvest, okay. right? So it, you could you could argue you could do that with anything. In fact, it's not specific to one supplier. It's it's uh, part of the folklore of uh, harvesting wood for the violin tradition, right? And so you'll find other people that did it and talk about it. Um, and what, as I understand it, and maybe we have a, um, we have a little video on our website uh, that comes from uh, uh, Andrea Florinet, Andrea Annette Florinet, or Tonewoods in Switzerland, um, uh, Burgoon, Switzerland. And they harvest for the violin tradition, and part of that is moon spruce. And here's how it goes you can, you, you know, they're just cutting old trees for this and being really selective. But the real top grade stuff they call moon spruce and here's the technique. And you can make your own judgment on the science behind this. know, so I'm gonna try to just give it to you straight. Is that these trees, which can be meters in diameter, really big trees, of course, They feed themselves with a hydraulic action that takes um, uh, the nutrients, you know, sunshine, soil, water, and so forth, and they take them up to the tippy top of the tree. That's some crazy action, right? Yeah. Uh, Capillary action or whatever forces the stuff to the extremes of the tree. So uh, if you have this big body of wood and it's full of uh, water, the effect of the gravity of the moon would have created an action on it, just the way that the moon phases, or I can say phases, moon's gravity affects our ocean. And maybe some people don't know this, let me do it. When we have a high tide, that's when the ocean is the flattest, right? Spreads out, we have a high tide. That's when the moon is at its least gravitational pull, has its least effect on the ocean. When the moon has its greatest gravitational pull, it pulls the ocean up into a hump in the middle, and that gives us our low tide, right? So you extrapolate to this big hydraulically active tree, uh, that the moon would have an effect on bringing up uh, bringing the water higher in the tree, or let's say of, it's always going to get higher in the tree. It's going to bring more water, more. more resin to the higher part of the tree, and when it's not, it won't. So when you cut the upper part of the tree at the phase of the moon with its least influence, you're going to have less moisture and less resin, and it dries quicker, it's more resonant, and when the quality is right, uh, combined with that, it becomes moon spruce. And it's really desirable for the violin makers, and that's the tradition we as guitar makers inherited.
1: So this this isn't a new age marketing term. No. This is something that's been around for hundreds of years. No, but it um, fits
2: really well in the new it, age vocabulary. It does fit in very yeah. well.
1: Yes, which is which is why I think there's a lot of people who kind of question it because. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, you, you know, I'll tell you, if, if not practical, these people are nothing that <laughs> harvest you know, wood and suffer the hardships and the financial deprivation to do it. So they're not going to add uh, a problematic thing to, you know. <laughs> to their process. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to choose to believe them. That,
1: that, a sounds, story. that sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. One thing I wanted to ask about is, is there any of this science or belief that uh, is unique to a specific type of guitar, i.e., um, we've been talking, I presume, primarily about flat-top steel string guitars, but is there anything about this that would be different or changed in some way if we were to be talking about a classical guitar, or a flamenco guitar, or an archtop guitar, or, or even if we were to go into a, a slightly different you know, family into the bowed instruments, the violins, cellos, violas. Or is is much of this science going to stay the same?
2: Well, to answer those eight questions, um, (laughs) (laughs) let me me start here. Having had a chance to preview some of these questions, I'm going to say, I can't think of one yet uh, where what I'm going to say doesn't apply to any uh, stringed instrument uh, that's using wood to amplify it. These will will all apply to that, whether it's an arch top, flat top, a classical. But if I do see one, I'll address that. Okay. Uh, I'll I'll change that. But here's what I'm going to say. If we went back a few generations, the steel string guitar, well, (laughs) if we go back a few generations, steel string guitar didn't exist, right? (laughs) But uh, the steel string guitar, um, uh, came up as really m- more of a mass appeal instrument. It's kind of the realm of the factories really. And in it's that done it's, its meant, job well. It's meant, yeah, it's meant to be uh, a broader appeal, more versatility, you play a lot of styles with it. Etc. the classical guitar was, like the violin, was stuck in a tradition. And not only did it have to look so, but it had to sound so to be taken seriously in that discipline. In that case, things like uh, the European spruces uh, were part of the sound of a classical repertoire. Clarity, aside from the, the subjective parts of the sound, clarity, really, uh, in the sound of the instrument. But in the classical guitar, that's not true anymore. The repertoire now for classic nylon string guitar is much broader. People doing everything from the elevated fingerboard to uh, Nomex and double tops and so on and so forth. So people aren't stuck with that. And not too many, a couple of generations ago, uh, Cedar was introduced into the classical guitar, which gave it an awesome voice and really attracted a lot of attention. That's also where the negative folklore about Cedar comes from, is the other builders that were jealous tried to dismiss it by saying it would have a short tone or life or it just wouldn't last more than so many years. So uh, you can see where now Classic isn't specific to Picea abbeys or the European spruce. It could, we could use other spruces on it. Arch top violin, they both work by pumping rather than the rocking motion of the bridge. But the tone consideration is the same. And again, I'll look for any variations here. But you can pretty much take these to everything except the violin is still pretty stuck in the European woods. Mm. Maple and... Uh, European spruce. Where well, you do find variations, and I bet another couple of generations, that won't be such a big a deal. That was a yeah, mouthful. Yeah. Did that make, the No, it, it makes a lot of, okay. I know
1: that with the violins, that tradition is so incredibly strong. Um, it is so unusual to see a violin that doesn't look exactly like a violin.
2: That's changing. Uh, That's it's changing. changing uh, but slowly. In, in the acoustic violin, orchestral, they all look the same. Yeah, yeah
1: exactly. So I wanted to ask about multi-piece tops or or single-piece tops. Um, You know, you see sometimes people asking about single-piece backs, which are hard to come by simply because hardwood trees don't generally get big enough to make a single-piece back out of Mm it. But spruce trees do get big enough to get a single-piece top out of it. Is there a a good reason that most guitars don't have a single-piece top or
2: well, I'm going to say we, we inherit everything from uh, the violin tradition and uh, subsequently the classical tradition because steel string guitars are new, right? Mm-hmm. So we do them like they did them. Why in the world would a violin use a two-piece stop not to conserve material? You know, it, it's really narrow. It's no problem getting a piece of wood that's big enough to cover that top. And although you may see some one-piece tops historically, I don't think they're taken very seriously. So let's go to why you would bookmatch a top. And this will answer the question why a one-piece top or a multi-piece top is not desirable. You know, we take um, a piece of wood um, that's quarter sawn, and one part's gonna be closer to the interior of the tree, one half is going to be closer to the uh, outside of the tree. And depending on which species of this is, uh, the the interior of the heartwood is going to be harder, or sometimes the outside of the tree will. It has to do with with the kind of wood. But because of those differences in, let's say, deflection, Mm -hmm. flexibility, you have a choice here now. If you were to take one piece, put the bridge in the middle, and introduce energy at that point, one side's going to go lickety split through less interference. The other side's going to slow down going through the stiffness. Wouldn't you rather have that be symmetrical? Uh, right? You, you get it. So when you put the top into motion on a bookmatch top where the stiffest stuff is in the middle, the energy first encounters the most resistance as it loses energy and velocity, it runs into less resistance, so it maintains its velocity it's out to the air. That's that's that way. the that's where that comes from. Now, you know, I've been at this for fifty years. I cannot remember if I thought of that or if I read that someplace. Uh, But I've said it so long, I just think, I just figure it's universal knowledge to that. But that's why we would never consider doing a one-piece top. Yeah, no, that makes just
1: tremendous sense.
2: I would say for us, we do a two-piece back because it's pretty, it's symmetrical. The the back itself is reflective and generally in uh, something like a mahogany, we could get a piece that big that would have pretty uniform density, Mm -hmm. but would even matter because it's reflective. Um, I think that's more being efficient with your use of wood and making an attractive presentation. Got but it. the top should be two-piece. Okay, okay.
1: What, what about multiple-piece? I mean, if you were to do four-piece or something, there have been some people that I've seen on the forum, have come up with some really beautiful old-growth Adirondack, yeah. but it's mm-hmm. not wide enough to well, get the top out of it.
2: Um, Just, you know, uh, going through a logic array here, of what we're introducing here, let's say you matched the wood to do what I described, mm-hmm. the stiffest in the middle and more flexible as you move, move out to the edge, and you did that on multiple pieces. Then what the discussion would be is what effect does a glue joint have? Uh, and I don't know. Okay. Uh, it would just be a pinion. So I, I really can't answer that question. Could you do it so that you could get the right effect? I hope so, because we're not going to be able to get big enough pieces. I say we collectively, generations from now, right, going forward. It's a great going thing. Forward. Martin made multi-piece tops in World War II. Well, that's been I've brought up. That. That's, that's why a lot of people. But say that was hmm. necessity, not by uh, intent. Okay. Right. It was to overcome a plus, shortage. Plus, yeah.
1: they didn't have podcasts to explain it to people, <laughs> so they didn't. And uh, they didn't
2: have to. They were Martin. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and that brings up the next question I had here, which I don't know. It's a simple true or false. Were sunburst guitars originally introduced to hide inferior quality
2: spruce? That uh, that got them put in the for me the category of folklore. Okay. Um, uh, I've heard that. I've heard that from from uh, you know back when I did have confidants and good friends at Gibson. That's what the story they told. Okay. You know because one of the things that would support that is that uh, let's take an old um, l5 or you know like a a super 400 or one of those guitars made out of maple the natural ones cost more than the sunburst okay um which would lead you to believe it was harder or more rare to get one in natural that was was out without flaws in that big of a guitar and that the sunburst was used to cover that up and oops they charge less but i don't have the definitive answer but i'll tell you we use it for that reason Okay. You know, because I, I, with no shame I say that there's beautiful wood uh, that's great toned wood, structurally no compromise. But there's a place where the angels kissed it, and you don't want to have to explain that to somebody. If you put that where the sound hole goes, under the pickguard, uh, or in the perimeter of the sunburst someplace, all is good. It's not like you're gaming somebody and giving them something inferior. Right. Since we build the order, people would uh, choose the sunburst in the start, right? we don't pick crummy wood to sunburst. Got That's it. really yeah. important that I say. <laughs> well, you yeah. don't
1: pick crummy wood in That's general right. at all. Yeah, so we're gonna pick our best
2: possible woods and we're gonna sunburst, but it's a nice coincidence that the sunburst would hide a place where the angels kissed it. I got it.
1: Well, this is very good, this is very good. So we started, I think we touched on hardwood tops, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think that there's probably a little more to go there. Uh, you expressed yeah. your, your great love of mahogany. Um, I share that. Mahogany top guitars. Do you know where they started, or why they started? Or you know,
2: I, I I'm going to say that I bet they started in South America because that was what you had, right? Uh, and no screws, uh-huh. perhaps. Down yeah. There? Um, or you know, somebody you know a lot of uh, a lot of our traditions come from somebody do, making something in their front yard with stuff that they could get. A day's walk right and that makes sense how it would come from because uh, I've seen a lot of folk instruments and uh, stuff using that style of music uh, with mahogany and Hawaii of course you see koa uh, instruments um, both guitars and uh, ukuleles right. you know they go way way back my inspiration is Martin guitars in the late 20s maybe into the early 30s and they did uh, the double O eighteen 18 and the double 28K, which was in response to the Hawaiian music craze, and they were all koa. Koa top, back and sides. And those guitars can sound incredible. Yeah. And remember our discussion about natural selections. The ones that weren't so nice probably didn't get taken <laughs> care of. The ones that sounded great were, and that's what we get today. So the koa O's. Uh, and then then uh, in the Depression, uh, the response to shortages and uh, costs by coming up with an all-mahogany guitar that was plainer and could uh, go at a low price, uh, be attractive. That's a lot of where we get our idea about mahogany being cheap, uh, mm-hmm. but it was just a decorative issue. And those, both of those were some of my favorite instruments ever, right. um, listening to those. And that's where the, the light bulb went off, oh, those aren't neither inferior woods or they're not meant to be excluded from being a top wood, they're great if treated right. Yeah. yeah. So we didn't think our way into using a mahogany top or a koa top. We had the historical precedent of knowing it worked and worked really well. So people are going to have a disconnect here. They go, I heard what Richard said, but I went down and I played a big brand X uh, mahogany or koa top and it was well, to be charitable, it sounded mellow. You know, it's quiet, it was restricted. Uh, here's the reason for that uh, disconnect. When those, when those big company names were smaller companies, uh, they took into consideration that density and they made those components proportionally thinner. So a COATOP top, uh, a double O from Martin in the 20s, or a, a mahogany top, uh, both m- uh, Martin and Gibson, would have been proportioned to sound good. Today, for efficiencies, the, the woods that go into guitar tops all run through the same machine. Right. You know, everything from a single O to a dreadnought to a a koa top to a spruce top, on and on and on. So sometimes that's too heavy and too dense to be appropriate. And in the case of, of smaller guitars, parlor guitars, modern ones generally are really disappointing when made by the factory done for efficiencies. And remember, I don't dismiss those. We need affordable stuff. Right. Right? But if you're looking for one that really sounds great, it's going to be a professional tool to express your creativity, then you would go to us to do it right. How's that for hubris?
1: (laughs) No, I I think that's absolutely right. I think that the, the other thing that maybe I would add to that is that there's a warranty situation with a lot of the big builders where they're going to build sure. things a little mm-hmm. little heavier than they really need to be just to minimize any potential warranty claims. Sure. Yeah, uh, we, I'm because sorry, they're not necessarily ahead. selling to careful musicians, they're selling to everybody who walks in the door and says, "Oh, that's a smaller instrument, that's good for my kids." And, you know, obviously they're not going to want an instrument that can't be used in the sandbox or
2: That's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, we witnessed that, um, the explosion of consumerism after World War II. We won, and we had a lot of scratch to buy things, right? <laughs> so, uh, guitars were no exception, mm-hmm. and, the, and the, the big companies went, holy mackerel, with this increased demand, we've got increased liabilities. Let's sturdy these things up.
1: So, uh, other hardwoods that you've played with, I know that you're very into sustainable woods. Have you played with any um, walnut, cherry, other other natives that might make good guitars. Um,
2: yeah, um, I'm sorry, I ran right over there, I'll let you finish your question. I'm
1: well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure where the question is going. I'm not sure what other woods would Have we would tried be...
2: other woods for tops? Well, yeah. I'm... Well, you know we have no trouble with introducing new woods for sides and backs, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, and we do that really carefully and we know what we're doing, and we've expanded the palette for, you know, all guitars in that regard. In tops, Um, I'm not about to do something on speculation just to see how it goes without some good scientific basis or experiential basis. And what what it comes to with these experiences is um, I've only got so many guitars I can build for experience in my career. And that's narrowing, right? uh, I don't have any 15-year projects or not more than a couple left here. (laughs) So I'm not about to just put a wood on a guitar to see how it sounds. So in that sense, maybe I'd like to see it in another context. Maybe somebody else is going to try it and we see how it goes. Or I can see that the wood has the characteristics. I mean, there's a lot of science available on wood you can find out. Right. Uh, it's workability, it's durability, it's shrinkability, on and on. You can make a pretty good guess uh, at doing that. Uh, but that's really its just the limits, the bandwidth limit that I have. So that. it's
1: not that you've ruled it out, it's simply no. something you haven't had time right. to... Right, and I wouldn't
2: discourage anybody from doing that, yeah. but I will say this. Uh, we know the properties of Koa Mahogany and we can pr- we've proven that we can build excellent sounding guitars. Not just okay guitars, but really exceptional sounding guitars with that stuff. Now we did do a walnut, and it was more intuitive and it was more, uh, I broke my rules because somebody asked for one and I went, okay, why not, right? And uh, that, that's coming up, and we'll see. Oh, it's coming yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that'll be And exciting. we'll see what we get out of that. I, I tried to pick it like I would Koa, and uh, we'll see what we get out of it. I'm, I'm uh, opinion alert. I don't know. Yeah. And that's never the case when we build a guitar for a customer. right? This is on spec. When we build a guitar for a customer, we can guarantee exactly what we're we'll yeah.
1: getting. Oh, this will be exciting. Yeah, cool. no kidding. I hope, I hope we get a chance to see that before it disappears. Yeah, I lost
2: my mind. We'll see how that goes. <laughs>
1: Well, while we're talking about the hardwood top um, guitars, you always, or at least I've always seen mahogany top guitars on mahogany back and sides and koa top guitars on koa back and Mm -hmm. sides. Is there any reason other than aesthetics that that happens, or have you seen something different?
2: You nailed it. It's aesthetics and superstition.
1: Ah, right. Um,
2: yeah, the, the uh, aesthetics, um, we're not used to seeing that. And one of the things that I kind of go by as a, you know, because of course I have to market things in order to uh, pay the rent and uh, keep the enterprise running, is uh, try to minimize the things that you have to explain that you don't have an explanation for, <laughs> right? If there's something you want to draw attention to and use as marketing, you want people to ask that question. But if you're just if you're just doing something that's really untraditional and you don't have a good reason, don't draw attention unnecessarily. So uh, for me to do a mahogany back and sides with a koa top, I think that just you would filter out so many people that might be interested because it's just weird, right? So it's, it's a perception thing. And the superstition is, is like I'm starting in a territory. I'm not really sure I have as much control over what I want to get with that. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of skittish in trying it.
1: Okay. All right. So just to kind of go off a, a, a weird tangent here, I'm going to now ask you talking. a question that you may not want to answer. But do you have a favorite top and back combination?
2: Okay. Um, uh, now I'm going to sound like a politician uh, this here, unashamedly. For your unashamedly.
1: For your own ear, your own sense, I'm not talking about for anybody else, but just for you.
2: Well, Ted, I love all my children. I just love them <laughs> differently. Um, uh, yes, I do. Now, I play, you know, I, I listen to and I play different styles of music. So, and luckily, I don't have to be stuck with one guitar, right? <laughs> Uh, and depending on what I'm playing. So here's what's important in, in this answer for everybody. The woods contribute to the, the scale of, of bright to dark. Uh, silver bell versus a bronze bell, right? Um, bright, clear, articulate to warm, blended, friendly, if you will. That's the scale, they're not qualities, they're flavors or colors in it. So when you put together a combination of woods, it's meeting your personal criteria for what works best for what you play, right? As uh, somebody who listens to my opinions as well as my science, if if I say my favorite is, people don't hear my favorite is. They hear Richard says the wood to use is. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. So what? What? I'm not dodging the question. I do have my favorites, but they change. Okay. Right? Because my tastes change you know, I get introduced to a different style of music, and I'm gonna say, you know, when I'm doing singer-songwriter stuff, and I'm more strumming and maybe accentuating with a few single-line leads, I want a guitar that's a little more towards the warmer end of the scale because it complements that style better. If I'm playing something where it's all showing off the prowess of the guitar player and the ability, hearing notes singly, I want a articulate, clear, bright-sounding combination of woods. So you can see, I can have two different Best choices in that, so I am a politician and I am trying to please everybody <laughs> at once, but that's the answer, right?
1: Well, and, and true. And, yeah. and you, you can say and what. You can have any guitar you want. <laughs> so
2: that's <laughs> well, I can play any guitar I want. Having them, you know what these things cost. Yeah. You know, I have my limits.
1: <laughs> very good, very good. Let's see. In reading the posts on the forums, when people go about ordering a custom guitar generally the first thing they talk about is what they've chosen for the back and sides. Hmm. And to my thinking, if you know what you want to hear, maybe the best place to start would be by choosing the top. What do you think?
2: You know, I've never been presented with that question. Congratulations. Um, that's a, that's, that's um, evocative. I don't have the same experience as you do uh, reading the forums. I'm talking to individuals you know that call up and want to get the right guitar for themselves and of course I'm incorporating the top in the discussion. I don't give them the (laughs) chance to just focus on the sides and back, right? Ah. With that because if we go back to this analogy that the woods themselves are like colors or flavors, meaning a personal choice, no right or wrong, Mm -hmm. um, then we realize that the back and sides and the top or a, a, a recipe. If somebody wants a really bright clear articulate guitar like our mutual pal Eric Skye, mm-hmm. we used a Adirondack Spruce, which is weight to strength show, gives a bright, whew, weight to strength ratio, gives a bright and clear tonality, and we use bolo back and sides, which also are bright and clear. He gets an instrument that is really articulate. Yes. Scary That's- for me. You know, yeah. it exposes my playing style, him, and it showcases his. Yes. Right. If somebody like me went, oh, I'd like, I'd like people to hear my single line leads really clearly, but I don't want that much exposure. Um, I can use an Adirondack top and a sides and back that are not as bright and clear. So we're on a scale here. Right. So you can take. A, I use this analogy. You make a, you know, a sauce for a dessert, and you go. You pucker and you go, God, you know, that is really way too tart. And you put pineapple juice in that, and now you get sweet and sour. They don't cancel each other out and you have no flavor. You get a different taste and it's more palatable to you, right? Or somebody would go, oh, you ruined it. I would like it tart. So that's where we can combine these woods. And there's almost, when people talk about pairing, it's a personal choice. There's no general statement you could make about this is right and wrong. So people worry they're going to put vanilla in their spaghetti sauce if they choose the right, the wrong combination of woods. But I really would say um, that's not the case. Okay. Um, I could, for the player, I could say no, 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 that's not the right combination for your style. Uh, but in general, it's not. It's not a big worry. So did that answer your question? Well, or yeah, I no. Take off on I my think, own. I
1: think when you, what, what was clear to me from that is that you can't differentiate the parts. The way most of the people on forums can because that really is the way a lot of the stuff on the forum starts is i found this great set of what kind of top should i put on it
2: that's right and they're probably talking about cosmetics for the most it part, and probably, I'm not being yes. dismissive of the forum people. That's that's every right. everybody from the most informed to the least uh, with that. But when somebody, you know, a non-guitar maker with the experience finds a piece of wood for sound, they're probably going to count on somebody else's up- expert opinion. Uh, the cosmetics is personal. It's going to appeal appeal to them okay. so yeah and it's fun it's it's a fun conversation and hopefully in all those replies is oh you should pair that wood with this top um somebody's gonna say you know what uh think about what you like you know and talk to your luthier uh, see what combination um yeah. would be best for your style that,
1: that that's that's always the best answer but that's the one that's least available on most forums so
2: that's funny. I, uh, yeah, remember, I, I'll, I will give an opinion alert, but I'm also pretty vocal when I, uh, I want to make sure people aren't led astray from forum folklore or, or just player folklore. Uh, that they can make informed decisions. If you read the forums, you would think that the guitar is so complicated, there's no way you could ever intelligently order a custom guitar, Yeah, and well, that's not true.
1: Well, we know the easy way is to just call the shop here. So.
2: Yeah, that, that's, my, that's one of my, uh, not my, prime goal in life but that's one of my goals in life
1: there you go so the the two kind of last things that that i think we need to kind of talk about with the tops um when once they start getting made into a there's there's two other ways you modify them and that is with the rosette and the purfling sure not the binding but the purfling Mm -hmm. I, i the main thing i wanted to ask about is there there's some people who believe that the rosette is purely a decorative item and yet every luthier that I've spoken to believes it has, you know, a, a serious structural mechanical purpose. And you see some of these decorative rosettes that are incomplete or whatever, and they're saying, that's not doing the job it needs to do. Do you have any thoughts on that, or? or?
2: Here's what I was taught um, from my mentor in the classical tradition on rosettes, that that the rosette uh, makes the area of the sound hole more rigid. So as the top pumps air, it doesn't distort that. You know, it doesn't wiggle and and either interfere with the air movement uh, or counteract it. Now, I don't know that science supports that. That's just in my head, you know, that that's why the rosette, uh, a classical rosette is put in to, you know, of course it's decorative, but it also makes it more rigid. Here's the practical reason for a rosette, and this is not opinion, the tree itself grows like a bundle of soda straws. And the way uh, the top is cut, uh, with the grains running perpendicular to the edge, like the very extreme end at the north and south, that's where moisture would come in and out the most rapidly, because they're soda straws. They're meant to move the the nutrients through water, through the, the, the structure of the tree. So they readily pull in moisture. Now the sides of them, which represent the surface of the top, do not, right? So this is why you find a board will crack at the ends and not in the surface first because of that rapid movement. Oftentimes people will dip it in wax, right, Mm -hmm. to keep the air going in and out. So that's what the rosette does. It seals that that end grain that's around the sound hole from taking moisture in and out. Of course, the perimeter of the guitar is sealed with the bindings. Mm -hmm. So that rosette, if you didn't have a rosette, you would be much more prone to cracking at the north and south of the rosette where the those uh, those uh, holes come out. does that make sense? yeah no okay, that, I always want to check no no <laughs> the, the, the,
1: that's that's what I always believed and yet, <laughs> you know you see some of these rosettes on some guitars that are extremely artistic. That's and, right. And, and non partial yeah. and, and, and even
2: partial. Now partial is okay. Just have the part that's not a rosette be on the east and west part of the sound hole where you have the side, side of the straws. Don't put it where you have the holes coming in and out because then you lose that advantage of blocking the rapid introduction or release of moisture that can make a crack.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes sense to have it reinforce that circular out which is going to be pumping out the air, mm-hmm. um, because then yeah. the air would pump out. And yeah,
2: a lot of classical builders do the same thing with a with a, with a cross grain spruce on the inside too, to now you r- rigidify that. That's the word, um, but uh, keep the moisture from moving in and out. Keep it from cracking. Got it. Got and it. that may be the only motivation. They know their master did that and it didn't crack. They're going to do it.
1: Right. It sounds- right. And then the other <laughs> the other side of the sideboard. When you get to the other edges is, is covered with purfling and the binding. And I think the bindings we could probably talk about with some other construction details, but the purfling is, is an integral part of, of the top. That's right. So, I mean, can you talk to us about purfling in, in general? And
2: yeah, so um, we're going to go back to the violin tradition, uh, because steel string guitars are all over the place, right? Uh, the violin tradition, uh, you have this little tiny air chamber And somehow, magically, it projects through the whole orchestra, but you can also hear it at the back of the concert hall. How does it do that, right? Well, one thing for sure, you can't have the sound of it radiate uh, 360 degrees. It really has to focus its energy right in front of it, right? It has to be directed. Violin's like a speaker cabinet. Who cares what it sounds like behind it? You want want it focused. So there's two tricks in the violin to do that. Um, and one of them is the purple. So you see, violin doesn't have any binding, but it's got that black, white, black line that runs around the top. It's not just for decoration, as cool as it looks. What it, what it is, is the violin top just inside the edge has a little trough made, okay? Uh, a little negative, little pocket. Uh, and in that goes the purple. If the purple was made out of solid wood, vibration move right through that, okay? So they grind that up, and they roll it out like a fiber. Uh, instead, it's uniform in density. Also, it's like cardboard, right? Hmm. It's not going to conduct resonance very well at all. So you put this little non-resonant dam all around the top, and when you dry the, the uh, top with the string energy, that vibration starts at the bridge, it moves to the edge, and there's no place it can go. It can't go into the framework of the instrument and radiate to the player it returns back into the top and pumps more air that comes out the sound holes, or the reflection of the top. So that's one way that the violin gets its focus. And we use the same thing, whether it's a black, white, black violin purple, a herringbone, um, or a, a S-29's, a copy of Lead Belly's 12-string stuff. They're all made from fiber, that's uh, maybe put together, cut, and stacked again to make it more decorative, but it's all the same stuff, and it's meant to isolate the perimeter or decouple the top from the sides and have the top really put its energy out directly to the audience. Got that's it. what that's about, and okay. and you're not supposed to know that because violin players won't, uh, makers won't tell you that.
1: And, and what about things like abalone or abalam or, or Ab, abba? No
2: problem if you border it in the purple. Ah. Right. If you just put it in there without it, um, you're going to lose your advantage. You you know, now there's nothing wrong with a guitar that sounds the biggest to the player. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you made like 250,000 guitars a year, your next problem is selling (laughs) 250,000 guitars. You're probably more prudent to impress the person behind the guitar with a credit card in their pocket than you are the audience. So, maybe it's no problem to make a guitar that radiates most to the player. But if you want a professional instrument to express your creativity, let's make it project. Right, right? go out towards yeah. the people. So, that's who are what listening. that's about. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: And, there, and we can do the bindings at another time, but they will either enhance or negate that depending on what material you use oh, Okay, to. okay.
1: Well, and then I was going to say there are some guitars you see out there that. Uh, They literally run the top right over the edges of the sides and then they just do a little round over around it. There's no kerfling, no binding, Elegant look.
2: Elegant look. And remember, what is the instrument for? Um, How powerfully do you want that instrument to project? Are you playing for yourself, an intimate group, or uh, whatever? But uh, we're thinking it's really added value. Now, we have tricks to make the guitar sound great to the player, too. Don't get me wrong, but it's very powerful as it projects out there.
1: Okay, okay, well I think we've covered about everything. Mr. Newman, have, can you do you have any questions or anything that we have not, uh, was, uh, the care and maintenance? Well, we could, we, yeah, do, before we leave the topic of this, uh, because the top is so important uh, on a fine instrument, uh, can you leave the audience with some um, recommended techniques for care and maintenance? Uh, and how to identify problems from the top. Uh, I say this because one thing that's always stuck in my mind is is people used to say, is it okay to use heavy strings on my guitar? (laughs) Is it okay to use light strings on my guitar? (laughs) And you said, I remember years back, hearing you say, you can use whatever strings you want, just pay attention to the guitar. It'll let you know very shortly whether it likes them or not, and if it doesn't like them, take them off.
2: <laughs> that's a great general statement. Although I would, I would shorten those parameters and leave heavy gauge strings to, uh, you know, uh, somebody that we don't that, that doesn't put them on our guitars. Right, uh, right. But yeah, lights to mediums and so forth. That's really true. You know, um, you can see the effects of the, the tension of those strings on an instrument. Common sense would tell you not to put modern strings on an instrument from the Baroque uh, that had gut strings on it. You know, it should, anyway, yeah. tell you to do that. And there's some guitars that were made super light, you know, for nylon strings or something. And and, a, and modern strings would, would literally um, distort it to and make it unplayable, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk within the reasonable stuff of modern steel string guitars. Yes, if you go from lights to mediums, you're adding more tension. And where that'll show up is your action wall rays. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good thing to find out what the bass line is, right? The guitar plays great. Has light gauge strings on it. Measure the distance from the top of the 12th fret to the bottom of uh, the two E strings, and write that down. Then you put mediums on, and uh, you let it settle in for you know a reasonable amount of time—hours or a day—and you see what happened. You know, uh, don't trust your feel as much as measure. If that came up, there's not only more tension on the top, but the geometry is getting disadvantageous. It's pulling, trying to pull the uh, nut, nut <laughs> and the bridge up towards each other and drain into the sound hole. So you can correct that, um, that rise in the action, uh, but you would first check your neck uh, for bow, and if it, if it gained excessive bow, which you should have measured in the first place too, mm-hmm. uh, you can do that by uh, capoing at the first fret, pressing down at the body joint, and finding out. Uh, what you can slip under the string in the middle between the top of the fret and the bottom of the string. Um, if you can't slide anything, like a dollar bill in there, if you play right, maybe it won't buzz, but for most people, that neck would be too straight. Too straight. Yeah. But remember, we're talking about added tension. If you went from mediums to lights with less tension, you might find that was the case. The dollar bill doesn't get in there. If you lifted the string and put it in there, it would be stuck. Right. Uh, you'd want a little bit more relief. Like two dollar bills or three dollar bills, and that depends on how hard you hit the string. So before I stray, let's I have go a two dollar bill. Where would I find <laughs> a three dollar bill? <laughs> Did I say that? I could have said that. I meant fold it. You know. Fold it like, uh, (laughs) uh, you could uh, fold it one, two, three times. The real thing, the real range is, you know, we talked about this before, uh, James Nash, Tony Rice play with absolutely straight neck and get away with it, us regular mortals can't. So you're going to need somewhere between usually about five to twelve thousandths of an inch clearance, depending on how hard you hit it. So going to mediums, if that's raised, you want to adjust the action back to where it was originally. I mean, not adjust the action, adjust the neck back to where it was originally. And then you check the saddle and find out, I mean, sorry, check the saddle, check the height, the 12th fret between the strings. If that's high, then you lower the under part of the saddle until you get the action back. Now you've compensated for that extra tension. Right. Do it again the next day, Yeah. right? See so if it's pulled up again, you adjust, if it continues to go, I'd say, you know, though, that's not right. Something, Fly, yeah.
1: Something's okay. happening that's going to lead to...
2: Yeah. There's a lot of generalizations, but it's too much for this uh, conversation, sure. but older guitars, remember, that were built lighter to sound better in a small body, stuff like that. Sometimes it's not advisable to put medium gauge strings on it. Sure. Right. And, and uh, you know, an experienced uh, Luthier's opinion is valuable on that.
1: Well, and, and- So, older guitars, as I recall from reading my old Overholzer books back in years gone by, were built with a perfectly flat top, and one of the ways you would kind of evaluate a guitar would be to use a straight edge and put it on the top, and see if it was still straight in every direction. Nowadays, a lot of builders uh, put a very slight radius into their tops. The radius is built in. For a variety of reasons which we can get into when we talk about bracing and building but so you can't necessarily use a straight edge to give you a quick idea of what's going on but you can look for a couple of things in the in the top um, to tell you if it's getting too dry too wet too to whatever i mean can you can you give us a little bit of feedback on on that
2: <clears throat> Help me remember uh, remember that last part of the question. Let me go back to Overholzer, who was one of my mentors, and I just love him, uh, uh, and what he did for all of us in understanding how to build guitars. Uh, he taught oodles of people at uh, Chico State. You know, He's long gone, rest his soul. And he had some pretty unique techniques because he learned to build uh, in isolation You know, right. from his first violin with a pocket knife so when he you know if the you know the quote you just said lay a ruler on the top and if it's not flat i'm going to suggest the only time you would find that is the case is a brand new guitar that never had strings on it you know ah. and you might find it flat if the builder had built flat martin did not build flat in the old days but no. they but the the radius on their braces really didn't shape the top as much as you'd think right so it wasn't apparent um, I had some old braces from Martin, and ding, they were radius. But the braces were both really light, and the radius was subtle enough that I don't know if it mattered <laughs> okay. when you did it. So a steel string guitar is going to take some shape, even if it was built flat. You'd never get a rule to lay flat. I bet that um, these guys on the phones here answer that question all the time. I, you know, I put a rule on my top; it's not flat. Well. Uh, a flat, a top built flat is going to load, it's gonna pull up behind the bridge and push up in front of the bridge is that even its resting state, that bridge is trying to bend into the sound hole and pull up behind it. So we do build in a radius, actually build in a shape on the top to uh, give it more durability in that regard. So if you put a ruler on the top of our guitar, you're gonna have space at, uh, uh, at the perimeter right. on it. Right. And there's a range where it should be. And when people call it, that's what we do. Put your lure lure on there, and if you can get this measurement on both sides, you're okay. Got it. Yeah, so what more you're looking for is it out of its norm. And where that's gonna show up again is the action, right? So if the top's pulling up inordinately, it's gonna take the bridge up, it's gonna take your action up, and you, it's nice to have your baseline for your action. That's the measurement from the top of the 12th to the bottom of both these strings. And you can always look and see. You know, high humidity, the top will go up, your action will go up. All right. All yeah, right. those kind of things. So the ruler just—if everybody forget that, you know, the it. ruler's not going to tell you anything. <laughs> so uh, you now there, there was some other parts of that question.
1: Well, it just so I'm just trying to remember back to when I was first starting to learn yeah. guitar a long, long time ago, and and old timers would say, if the guitar doesn't have a little belly in it. Mm-hmm. Then it's probably no good.
2: Well, it probably meant it was overbuilt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is—I'll I'll say this—it'll apply to a lot of the questions you ask. When you choose to build guitars, if you want to build it for maximum—let's do this—you're—you're you're on the uh, fulcrum, the rocking point between durability and resonance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lighter you build it, the more resonance it's going to be. The heavier you build it, it's going to be more durable. So on that balance, that fulcrum is going to. Um, the, if you want to sell more guitars, you better make them more durable. If your price is going to be low, they're going to go all over the world to people not educated and care, you better make it really durable. The okay? more you want it to perform, the more you're going to work towards that. Right? It's more expensive to make a good sounding guitar than a durable guitar. Yes. Okay. And and although we do a lot of precautions to avoid people having problems with it, the top has to load a little bit to, to work properly, you know. We do that uh, two ways. We do it by shaping that top to start with. But yeah, it's a, if you don't have any belly behind the bridge or no uh, depression in, in front of it, it's, it probably doesn't sound very good. That's but good, you can take it to the beach.
1: There you go. You know, you go.
2: and that has its place. Yeah.
1: Well, and and which brings up one last question I should ask. If you were storing a guitar for a period of time, Mm. some people believe leave the tension on the strings so that the guitar maintains its relative tension Mm -hmm, across the board. Other people say, no, take all the tension off. I will admit that I'm more of a take a little bit of the tension off person. Um, Your thoughts? Yeah,
2: tension never sleeps. In in a guitar at rest, uh, the bridge, the pin bridge, is trying to pull straight up from where the ball in anchors under the top, and the string behind the saddle uh, is pulling up. And then it crosses the saddle and it pushes down. So that, again, that rocking motion between those pulling up and pushing down is what pumps the air we hear uh, as sound. Um, When the guitar is sitting static, it's still trying to push down in the front and pull up at the back. So, when we're playing the guitar every day, we'll notice if it doesn't feel right and the action's coming up, but in the closet you won't. Right. And for every degree that the action comes up, the stress is, is greater of the nut trying to pull towards the saddle, right? So it's just like if you put two sticks together parallel, you can't compress the wood. But as soon as you start to turn them into a V, it's much easier every degree to fold them in half. So that guitar in the closet, you don't know what's happening. And if you came back a couple of years later, it might not be repairable, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Things could have distorted by that point. Um, If it's in the car, even worse, because heat's involved and the glue could get a little plastic. So let's do this. I'm going to ship my guitar from here to New York. Should I loosen the strings? If you're sending it in quick enough and it's not going to go through any extremes, keep it up to tension because when it gets there, if you loosen the strings, the truss rod is still pulling against the strings. And when you string it back up, the truss rod is going to be over, overcorrected and you'll have to wait for it to settle in and recorrect that. We can't do that when we're delivering a guitar to a store because they're going to hang it on the wall for sale. We want the truss rod right. So we don't Uh, detune the strings. But if somebody's saying, look, I'm going to go sail around the world. I'm going to leave my guitar in here in the closet. It might take me two years to do this. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, loosen the strings. By all means, you can always adjust the truss rod. Uh, You can go find the bridge pins that fell out on the floor, but your guitar is not going to be under that incessant tension that could distort it. So again, context, where do you loosen your strings versus where you don't? And um, if you're going to ship over the ocean, you know, and it's going to take a month to do, um, I would vote for your technique. Tune it down enough to reduce the tension, but not enough to allow the bridge pins or the nut and saddle to fall out. Got it, So, cool. Again, you know, I'm sorry. I'd like to say yes or no, but but that's that's the answer to that. (laughs) That's a great, helpful question for people.
1: Well, I think that that pretty much covers tops. Of course, we want to just say that when this podcast is out there, if you go on to the Santa Cruz Guitar Players forums, if you have more questions for a Richard uh, or for us on a, for a future podcast, please, please send them to us and, and we'll see what we can do to include them. I'm hoping that we will go on with a series of these, which will cover other specific aspects of guitar building so that we can gain more of Richard's um, expertise and experience. Uh, break some of those myths that abound on the internet and bring some science to um, the craft and art. I guess at this point I just want to say thanks to both of you for these two podcasts on tops. It's been really wonderful. I've had a fantastic time just listening to some of this stuff. It's reinforced some of what I've believed and uh, knocked a couple of ideas loose, which I'm happy to lose.
2: Amen to that. All right. (laughs) I, I agree. Everything he said and more of it that was fun
1: all right fantastic we'll see everybody at the next podcast
0: thank you for joining us for part two of tops with richard hoover tune in next time as we continue our discussion of tops with adam rose music for today's podcast is graciously provided by forum member daniel playing saint anne's reel and i think he's playing both guitar and mandolin on there so again thank you daniel and we look forward to seeing you next time Thank you for joining us on the Santa Cruz Coffee Break. Please, spread the word to other guitar players who you think would enjoy listening. Remember, to check the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum site for more information about the topics we discussed, as well as to get the links to the artist reference today. You can also make suggestions for future podcasts or submit questions that we might pose to Richard Hoover and his team. The Santa Cruz Coffee Break is a special project by members of the Santa Cruz Guitar Players Forum and is solely the opinion of those speaking. Santa Cruz Coffee Break is hosted, produced, and engineered by the Tadman Group. Keep on playing and come back next month.